teaching uh, what uh, most theologians, what we went up to him, when's your kingdom coming? And Jesus would say, all right, you're missing the point. Don't worry about when the kingdom comes. Worry about the fact that the king is standing in front of you. Or the kingdom is in the midst of you. You're missing the point. Don't be focused on what's going to happen out there. Focus on what's happening in here. Over and over and over again. So then we get to this holy week where Jesus, we saw him come out uh, through the triumphant entry. Hosanna, Hosanna. We saw him uh, standing over the city of Jerusalem, weeping. We saw him flipping tables. We saw him teaching in the temple. So remember, he's there probably at, at Solomon's porch. He's got a couple of hundred people out in front of him, thousand people. We don't know that we don't get a count, but a big crowd of people. It's just called the crowd. The crowd's out there. He's got his disciples with him, and we have this litany of scribes, chief priests, and Sadducees and Pharisees coming to Jesus asking all kinds of questions. This goes on for, well, we've been studying it now for two and a half months. We've been looking at this happening. So this happens all this day. Last week we saw Jesus finish up that temple teaching time by saying, hey, don't be like the Pharisees doing all this stuff. And then he pointed at a lady who puts in two copper coins and says, bam, she's giving out of her need, they're giving out of excess. Don't be like this, be like this. And so we've talked all the way through that. Jesus is now finished with that teaching time. And they're apparently moving. The crowd's dispersing. Jesus is walking along. He passes, and it doesn't even tell us who. We don't know if it's disciples. We don't know if it's people from the crowd. Somebody just makes an off-the-hand comment, oh, this place is nice. It's not, I mean, it's like a tourist standing there taking it and Jesus like, hey, now he goes into prophecy. When everybody's asked him over and over and over again as we did all that kingdom teaching, when's this coming? When's this going to happen? He's like, oh, stop, stop, you're missing the point. But here, after he finishes his temple teaching, he just passes somebody who goes, man, these are some nice rocks. And then, bam. So for the next, it's going to take us all the way into Christmas, we're going to be looking at Future things that Jesus talks about here. The, the same teaching is, is mirrored in uh, Matthew 24, and it's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is talking through this stuff. It's just, it says, while some were speaking in the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. What are they, what are they noticing here? Well, the first thing they noticed that they... Uh, the big rocks, big stones, and this is what they're referring to here. When Herod decided to make the temple bigger and more fancy, the temple that was there, remember the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then the second temple that was built was a little bit smaller. Remember the whole story that when the foundations were laid, the young men were going, woo, we got a temple, and the old men were crying because they saw what it looked like in comparison with the old one. That's the second temple. Herod comes along, and he says, this isn't good enough. We got to remodel this. And so what he did was is the temple is kind of on the western edge of Mount Zion. He went out. He dug a trench around the bottom, and then he built this big retaining wall, just like you know, you've seen people build in their yard, except... The scope and the size of this thing is amazing. They built this huge retaining wall, and they backfilled that to create the grounds for the temple 
much, much huger. The size of the stones that they used is amazing. Some of them weighed over 100 tons. The largest was 44 feet by 11 feet by 16 feet. These things are massive. That's the size of a house, and it's one rock. Josephus spends a lot of time talking about how they would even mine those rocks that were that big and how they used uh, wedges and drilled holes and then would use uh, actually put wooden wedges in and then flood it so that the wood would swell that were in those holes and that would cause the rock to split. And then they would drag that out and they would use different stones to smooth it so that it was exactly the right proportion. And then they would take it to the temple site and Roman cranes could not pick up those rocks that were that big. So they would have to set up multiple cranes. The whole thing was done at a time where temple worship still occurred. Sacrifices were never stopped as this happened. So no Chisels were being heard at the site. No, no, no loud thing was going on, and they were moving these massive, ton- these massive stones. The average stone was two and a half feet by three and a half feet by fifteen feet, still weighing twenty-eight tons. It was impressive. In fact, the only part of the temple that's still left today is that retaining wall, the western wall, and so somebody's in the temple and they're looking at how amazing this is and how. Nothing could move. I mean, you imagine a hundred-ton rock. Nobody's looking at it going, well, this is, this is temporary. A hundred tons is a big old rock. And so somebody's just commenting on that, and it says that they were commenting on the offerings. Now, it would be easy for us because we just saw this section where the, the Pharisees were coming in and blowing trumpets. Remember last week we talked about that blow? I'm giving my offering and think that's what he's talking about. But no, on that outer portico where, where, the, uh, where this teaching was occurring, nations and, and leaders would give offerings that were big, beautiful works of art that could be put there for people to see. In fact, the Roman emperor Caligula wanted a big old statue of himself there. And because Jewish law prohibits making of any graven images, there was a whole thing. Thankfully, one of the Herod's sons went to Rome and said, listen, if you put a statue of yourself in here, it's going to cause literally a riot. So why don't we hold off? And so he decided to do something else. But there were all these gifts that were given by other nations that were big and ostentatious and beautiful. And it's just like when you walk around in D.C., how everything is big, it feels overwhelming, we kind of know the way everything's laid out, whether you've been to D.C. or not, you know that the Capitol sits at one end, there's a big mall through the middle, and then the White House sits on this end, right, there's the big Washington Monument that sits there, you've got the Lincoln Memorial, you've got all of that stuff is there and spread out, and it feels substantial, nothing is going to get rid of this. And you walk into the Lincoln Memorial, and those columns are massive. And you are overwhelmed by the fact that there's this huge statue of Abraham Lincoln looking at you from sitting up on his perch, and you're like, this thing is huge. Just imagine what it took to build this. In fact, I saw a thing uh, online that was like secret places that nobody knew was there, and it was showing the caverns underneath the Lincoln Memorial where they've got these massive, like, the size of a house, pillars 
that are there to hold up all of that marble above it. And this, this person who wrote this article didn't realize that, yeah, we've known that that's been there ever since they built it. Uh, this isn't some kind of secret thing. But it looks like it should be this big, huge concert hall because it's so huge and cavernous. And they're looking at this sort of thing going, this is awesome. This gives you national pride. This makes me feel like there's substance here. And Jesus is saying, don't put your faith in this kind of stuff because let me tell you a little secret. And not too far from now, literally about 40 years after Jesus makes this statement, not one stone was left on top of the other. Not only were people amazed by the size and the scope and the layout and the gifts from other nations. Think about this. We know from the Talmud that the original, from all the way back at the tabernacle, so at the time that this was written, you're looking at about 3,000 years old, the original menorah, the original table of showbread, the golden altar of incense, and the golden censers had all been returned from Babylon. And so inside of the temple, you had stuff that was 3,000 years old. You had a table of showbread that Aaron literally on that table lifted up the bread to do the grain offerings and the wave offerings. When we see old stuff, it's just crazy amazing, right? When we lived in Accra, there was this column... Uh, in the old city that, that looked like a small version of, of the Washington Monument. It was an obelisk, and it's, they called it Caesar's Column. And the reason they called it Caesar is because a few years ago, Caesar, the Caesar, came to town to Ankara, and so to honor him, they had put this big thing up. And it always amazed me that something that's been there for 2,000 years is still there. I mean, I would look at it sometimes, and they, uh, a pelican had built a nest in the top of it, and it was, they protected that pelican. And I always thought, that is crazy that something that old is there. And that was like young compared to what they're looking at. This table, again, Aaron literally worked from this table, that one right there. And can you imagine, just like when we go to D.C. and we stand in front of the the Declaration of Independence, or we stand in front of the, the, the Bill of Rights, we look at that and go, man, that's 200 years old. That's amazing. Well, this is 2,000 years old. I mean, these people have French fries in their floorboard that are older than our country. Think about that for a second. It's, um, so, I mean, it's just awe-inspiring. Nothing can change this. That table's been there for 2,000 years. Now, we do know that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. It was lost when the first temple was destroyed. And so in the Holy of Holies, in its place, and I'm just throwing this out here for free information because I knew I was going to get some questions about it, uh, there was just a stone. And uh, according to the Talmud, they called that stone uh, the foundation stone. And so when the priest came in and made his sacrifices, he made it on that rock um, instead of there being an Ark of the Covenant. But all that old stuff was there. And yet Jesus says, as for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone, not one stone that will not be thrown down. This was such a radical statement that literally at his trial, this statement is brought up. 
Did you really say that? How ridiculous is it that you would say something that crazy? This week as I've been praying and thinking about this text, I think that we're in a position today in our lives that we understand the radical nature of what they're saying. There are things that we thought would always be a certain way that in the last six months have changed. I mean, if you think about it, this time last year, as we were going into fall last year, if somebody had told you the government's going to tell churches that they can't meet in just six months, what would your response have been? I would have said, that ain't never going to happen. Ain't nobody going to let that fly. If you had told me that to go into Walmart in Gadsden, Alabama, you would have to put on a surgical mask, I would have told you, Look, they have a hard enough time getting people to put on a shirt to go into Walmart. (laughs) And in fact, I have literally seen someone in Walmart without shoes but with a mask on. Would you have thought a year ago that any of this was possible? That a government, a group of government officials would let their citizens burn their city down? Would anybody have thought that would happen? That doesn't make any sense at all. I would have argued with you. Everything seems to have changed. So that right now, I just this week got an email from uh, Leaps, which is an organization that works with law enforcement, um, that suicides in the last eight months among law enforcement has gone up 20%. There have been more people who have died from suicide, from loneliness, from being isolated in the last nine months than have died from COVID. People are questioning what in the world is going on? What is stable and what isn't? And I've said it before any of this happened, We've got to understand that our salvation is not going to come from the government or a politician. Those buildings in Washington, no matter how permanent they look and feel and how stable they make us think everything is, one day will collapse. Someday they'll be gone. Someday the Washington Monument will be a relic laying on its side And school kids will stand around it and go, this was once a part of a nation. That is not where our hope lies. And so all the things that we think give us stability, we've got to question that. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. This group of people who just made the comment, man, this place is awesome. Hey, hey, slow your roll, biggin'. And then he says, he goes on to say, all right, they, well, they immediately go, when is this going to happen? Just like you would, right? If you were standing at the Washington Monument, somebody goes, you know what, someday this thing's going to lay on the ground. You would say, when? So he begins giving some prophecy. And before we really dig into it, we've got to understand a little bit about prophecy. 
We talked about this some before. The fancy term for prophecy is eschatology. It's the study of future things. And so for the ne- from now until Christmas, you've got to put your thinking caps on because we're going to have to go into some really complex stuff. And one of those ideas that we're going to have to struggle with and struggle with attention of is this idea of near and far fulfillment of prophecy. Let me give you an example of that from the Old Testament that you, so you'll know because we from our vantage point of 2020, we can look back and see how this works. Isaiah was prophesying to a king named Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So he tells Ahaz. He had already made some prophecies about what's going to happen. He says, okay, to prove it, ask anything you want of God. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah doesn't think that his Sunday school answer is very good, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? What he said was, look, everybody's sick and tired of your stuff on earth, and now you're making God sick and tired of your stuff. That's not a happy response. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I ask you to ask God for a sign to prove that he was telling the truth. Since you won't ask, the Lord's going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, right now, there's a little girl in your kingdom. She's a maiden. She's still a virgin. She is going to get a little bit older. She's going to get pregnant, and she's going to have a kid. And when that kid gets, by the time that kid gets old enough to tell the difference between right and wrong, The king that you're so worried about right now, because remember they had the other 12 tribes had been carried off into captivity. Ahaz is scared to death that that's about to happen to Israel. Before that kid gets old enough to be able to tell good from evil, the two kings that you're so worried about right now, that whole country won't even be a country anymore, which we see happens. That prophecy was fulfilled. The nation that Ahaz was so afraid of ended up, the king went back home, got stabbed in the back by his own son. That country fell apart. Babylon came in and filled that void. So a kingdom that Ahaz didn't even know about was the one that came knocking on Jerusalem's door and ended up taking the children of Israel off to captivity. That's the prophecy that Isaiah makes. And that prophecy was fulfilled near fulfillment when that happened, some lady who are a little girl grows up, has a baby. That baby gets old enough to be able to tell the difference between good and evil. He's eating solid food. It says he eats curds and honey. Um, and so once he gets to that age, bam. So that prophecy was fulfilled. But in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, an angel comes to him and quotes this verse. So that near prophecy that was fulfilled was fulfilled in the, woman, the little girl growing up, 
getting pregnant, having a baby, and that baby growing up. But the far fulfillment of that prophecy was Jesus. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins. So you have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment of everything that we're going to read about over the next few months as we look at prophecy happened in 70 A.D. We've already talked about this some. In 70 A.D., just 40 years after what Jesus talks about here, Titus, a Roman general, comes right up to the gates of Jerusalem, blockades the whole city so nobody can go in or get out. He purposefully waited until the week of Passover so that when he trapped everybody in the city, there was about 300,000 extra mouths to feed. And so he set out and said, how long y'all want to wait? And then after a period of time, they surrendered. He went into Jerusalem and burnt it to the ground. In between those huge stones, they had used gold to make it shimmer. You could see the temple from miles away from the sun gleaming off of that white limestone. And in between each stone, they had put gold so that it would shimmer and glimmer and be beautiful. Well, those Roman soldiers wanted that gold. So what they did was they would build fires at the base of those stones and get them hot so that they were cracking. And then they would push them and knock them over so that that gold would melt and run out. And so not one stone was left on the other. Those big 20, 30 million pound, uh, ton stones, if you get them going the right direction, they just going to go. And so the unbelievably unthinkable thing that Jesus talks about here happened in just one generation. And yet... It seems like Jesus, as he's telling this story, comes in and out of what's going to happen in 70 A.D. and what's going to happen in our future. What's going to happen during the church age. And so we've got to, over the course of the next few weeks as we study this, we're going to have to look and say, is this something that was fulfilled near in 70 A.D. when Titus came in and did some horrible things, destroyed everything that was there? Or is this something that's going to happen in our future? One of the things that Jesus brings up immediately is, he says, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. I am, uh, I don't know what I am. I don't know if I'm a young man or an old man. At 50 years old, some, uh, Doug Pope says, you're so young, and then, I guess because he's, what, 103? I, I don't even know. So I got Doug Pope telling me how young I am. You know, you ain't always going to be able to do that. You're going to wear yourself out, young man. You need to, I don't know what he wants me to do, sit at home and watch ESPN. Um, and then I've got other people, younger people that are like, man, you're old. Did, did, you, did you go to school in a buggy and a wagon? Kind of a thing. And so I, I'm, I'm sitting in that middle ground, but I can say this, that in my lifetime, in my lifetime, the Lord's coming back any day now. I've heard that, haven't you? Everybody in this building who grew up in church heard that, oh, has heard that over and over again. I'm going to tell you a secret. It's embarrassing, but it really happened. In 1988, I read a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. I believed it, man. Jesus is coming back in 88. 
to the point that I literally went to Mike Davis, who was the principal at Cusa Christian. What do I care about college? The Lord's coming back in 88. Really, do I need to do all this studying and stuff? I mean, who cares? The Lord's coming back. I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be fooling with trig. And according to Paul, I'm going to be like Jesus because I'm going to see him as he is. So I'm going to have all knowledge. So I'll know trig better than you then. Thankfully, Mike told me to shut my mouth and go back to class. It says, many will come and say, I'm Jesus. Notice here, the Antichrist doesn't say, I'm the Antichrist. I'm wicked. I remember, and I guess it was in the, uh, this is going to make you guys think that I am really super old. In the 70s, there was a, like a miniseries that came on TV that was Damien, and he was the Antichrist, and he was, hey, you know, he was wicked, and he had, everybody was scared of him, and he, he would walk in a room and mirrored would crack and all this kind of stuff. That's not how the Antichrist comes. That's not how Satan comes at us. The Antichrist is going to look like, this is God's gift to mankind. This God's the solution. He's figured it out. There have been men since Jesus said this for the last 2,000 years that have said, I am the solution. I'm the thing that's going to work everything out. I've got a plan, and I'm going to finally bring peace to the Middle East. And it's never happened before, and it ain't going to happen. I hate to tell you, I've read Revelation. It doesn't happen until Jesus brings peace to the Middle East, and he does it with a rod of iron. So what Jesus prophesies here has happened over and over and over and over and over throughout human history. Antichrist, people saying that they come in the name of Jesus and represent Jesus, has been happening in the church my whole life. Has happened since Jesus said this. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2 it says, Children, it is the last hour. 2,000 years ago he wrote this. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, right now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us that they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. People who rise up within the church, they look like they're believers. They look like they're, they're Christians. They look like they've got their act together. And then they run off, and they do crazy stuff. And now we have Facebook so that we can go, what in the world happened to this person that I love so much? Right now, if you look at my ordination papers and look at that, the list of names of the men who laid hands on me, out of those nine names, only two are still living for Christ. What Jesus is saying here is, look, this world is not going to provide you with stability. These buildings are not going to provide you with stability. People are not going to provide you with stability. Even if they say, I'm like Jesus. The only thing that we have that will provide us with stability is God and his word. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are stable no matter what happens. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As Matt and I looked at Revelation chapter 4, those angels in heaven and Isaiah were saying the same thing that they're saying to John. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. If I drop off the face of the earth tomorrow, if you get a call, hey, Pastor Tom, they found him in Tijuana hanging from a chandelier. Drunkard and Cooter Brown. I don't know why Cooter Brown's always drunk. Poor Cooter. Always getting blamed for getting tore up. If I fail utterly in my faith, it doesn't undermine what that book says. I will disappoint you. Guaranteed I will disappoint you. Just spend a little bit of time around me. I'm going to do things that hurt your feelings and you don't like. I'm a man just like anybody else. Every other man is just like everybody else. I'm telling you, you've got to put your faith in God, not just God's people. We need God's people. I preach it over and over and over and over again that you are not going to be successful in the Christian walk if you try to do it on your own. Absolutely true, but I also want you to understand, you cannot put your faith in any man. You can't. And you cannot let the failure of men undermine your faith in the Christ who is faithful. God does what he says he would do every time. Many's going to come. They're going to say, hey, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the sent one from God. And you're going to come to say, the time is at hand. Now, the text that we read in 1 John, what did John say over and over again? Last hours, last times, last days. It's the end. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. But I know that we're closer today to Jesus coming back than humanity's ever been. I know that just because I went to math class. Because Mike Davis made me. And we know that in the arc of human history, we're at the end. We're in the last days. Paul said that. Jesus said that. John said that. Peter said that. That is said throughout the Bible. We're in the last days. Jesus' point here, though, of saying, hey, they're coming, it's echoed in 2 Thessalonians. I want to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, do not not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seemingly to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness and revealed is revealed the son of destruction. What Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonians, because they were convinced, because some people had told them, hey, Jesus has already come back, you just missed it. And so they're standing out on a hill jumping, trying to catch up with the rapture, right? And Paul is saying, look, no, don't, don't buy that. Don't be focused on that unless all the stuff that Jesus, we're going to study over the next few weeks, the man of lawlessness comes, uh, the Antichrist comes, all, unless that stuff happens, it hasn't happened, and you, you, you will know it. Jesus says, look, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, there's going to be turmoil, there's going to be craziness. 
don't be afraid. Settle down. We as believers should never function out of fear, ever. And we do so often. I see our response as a church to Islam is fear. We respond by going, ah, instead of going, hey, those are people that Jesus died for. They need to hear the gospel. Oh, my gosh, the Antifas are going to come burn us down. Well, if they come, let's share the gospel with them. I'm saying we don't have to be afraid. The worst this world can do to us is kill us, and to be absent from the body is to be present with God. The Chinese can dump all of the COVIDs on me, and I shouldn't be afraid. Be not afraid is the most often repeated command in the Bible. Now, I get it. I get it that the command to don't be afraid is kind of hard to do, right? It's kind of like we talked about before. If I tell you not to think about purple elephants, what's everybody thinking about? And so you get this idea of, well, how am I supposed to control my emotions like that? Every time an angel shows up, it always says, don't be afraid, right? And it says that because obviously angels aren't little naked babies because they're scaring the baloney out of somebody. I tried to think of something I could say and not get in trouble with Ann. I got nothing here. So I pulled baloney out, and it just didn't work. I don't know. So these angels show up, and they're big warrior-looking things, and they're, they always have to go, don't be afraid. And I've always thought, that is a terrible thing to say to somebody if they're terribly afraid. What are you doing? Just stop being afraid. Like you're going to go, oh, oh, okay, my bad. So Jesus says here, he ends this particular text, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, and the end will not be at once. What does that mean? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when all this stuff happens, when there's wars, rumors of wars, there's all kinds of turmoil, there's all kinds of craziness, don't be afraid, because the plan is working out just exactly the way God planned it. Okay? We claim to know God. I had a person who works in law enforcement, he's not a believer, who, when all this COVID stuff happened, uh, was talking to me about something totally different. He said, you know what's something I've noticed? And I said, what's that? So I got this typical preacher thing. I've, I've told you that when people find out that I'm a preacher, usually that means they don't cuss at all or they cuss an extra whole lot. One or the other. That's the way it gets. So this guy was falling on that cuss an extra whole lot side, and so he's like, I can tell what y'all really believe. You say that you believe that God is all-powerful and all this kind of stuff. You say that, but boy, y'all went running for the hills and shutting her down just like everybody else did when the COVIDs came. Now, I think that we need to be wise, and God has not called us to tempt him, and I, I, I think that every decision that we made, but there's some truth there that we need to think about, and we need to think about the fact that if we're sitting around running in circles, screaming and shouting, flipping out because things are going the way we want, it shows who our God is. Because if all your hope, all your trust, all your faith is in the stuff of this world, when it falls apart, it's going to freak us out. What do you mean? i got to get to the Walmarts. Somebody go get me a case of toilet paper now. Stomp granny in the head. 
Oh, you old bitty, I'm getting that toilet paper. All right? Because our faith is in all the same thing that the world's is in. If we live our lives for money and all the stuff that money will get us, if we live our lives for all the same stuff that the world does, when the world starts falling apart, it's going to make us upset. If we're focused on the fact that this world is not our home anyway, and that God still said in Romans chapter 8 that there's nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, for neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor anything under the earth. I mean, Paul literally says, and anything else in all creation, none of that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus is saying to these people, yes, all this is going to be destroyed. Everything that you put your faith in right now, this building, these people, all of this is going to go away. Don't be alarmed because God's working a plan. And for us, we know God. And again, worst case scenario, we die. And is that really a loss? Just think of stepping on shore and calling it heaven. Of touching a hand and finding it's God's. Of breathing new air and finding it's celestial. I'm not saying that we're suicidal, because we're not. We want to take as many people with us to heaven. But I'm saying our faith and our hope doesn't lie on this blue ball. This is not our home. We're here for a job. And we need to be focused on the job We need to be doing what God's commanded us to do, loving everybody around us, trying to pull as many people to Jesus as we can. But we do not place our faith in the things of this earth. Father God, Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that we would loosen our grip on this world. God, I pray that we would love you enough to obey you. And we would love you, as Peter was asked, do you love me more than these things? God, that we would. We would love you so much more than these. God, I pray that your word over the next few weeks, Lord, is so complicated. It's going to be so hard for us to get everything that you're saying, or even to understand it. So, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. You promised us that your Holy Spirit would come as our teacher, and, oh, Lord, we need it. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see wonderful things from your word, and that this would give us the strength to march forward and build your kingdom. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.